Shalom, friends. What a day, the day after Yom Kippur. What a day. Wow. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. Great to see you all. Love seeing you all. <coughs> and how amazing, you know, the, all those jokes about after a bar or bat mitzvah, you know, the kids never come back. The day after Yom Kippur, nobody wants to come back. <laughs> but you all come back. It's amazing. It's amazing. And I hope that's not because Yom Kippur left a little bit of longing, a little bit yearning for more this year. <laughs> but actually, because it jazzed us up. To go to the next level. So thank you for being here. And um, again, I'm sorry for the, the, the late start. We had a, a new mic that wasn't working. So I'll have to figure that out. Okay, this is a good one. This is a good one, friends. Malabing, Malabing, Malabing. The 13th Malacha is Malabing, which means whitening or bleaching or laundering, which comes from the root word Lavan, white. In this Malacha, we're concerned mostly with removing stains from garments. The idea of this action as a malacha emerged from the Mishkan with regard to bleaching wool as part of the process of producing the tapestries. Now here's a really cool tosefta. Again, a tosefta uh, means an extra source of the same Talmudic era, uh, but was not put in the Talmud. It was collected in the tosefta, kind of like a breita. So um, the Tosefta are these extra sources. And this is a really cool um, uh, triage uh, tension in Tzedakah. Okay, ready? I got the source here so you can see it here on the screen. This is, uh, uh, the, um, this is really interesting. A cistern provides water for a town in a time of drought. Concerning the townspeople and other, the townspeople have precedence to the water. Okay, so let's flesh that out. What that means is there's a limited amount of water and you have to decide whether to give it to your local folks or to people of another town. Everyone agrees, local comes first. Okay, here's the second paragraph. The town's animals and the lives of others, the lives of others have precedence over animals. But Rabbi Yossi disagrees. He says the animals have precedence before the town people. So here, the debate of local versus distant, the rabbis agree human life takes precedence over animal life, and thus we give uh, the supplies, the limited supplies, to other human beings, even though they're not local. But Rabbi Yossi disagrees. 
he dissents and he says that um, local still prioritized over, over the distant. And so we help local animals over people of another town. Okay, here's the third paragraph. The animals of the town and the animals of other towns. Okay, animals of the towns, people have precedence. No machloket, no disagreement. If the issue is only local versus distant, everyone agrees local first. Okay, but now here comes another disagreement. The last paragraph, the lives of others and the laundry of the town. The lives of other have precedence to the water. Rabbi Yossi disagrees. He says that the laundry of the townspeople come before the lives of the others. Okay, very interesting. So this, this last paragraph, the rabbis say, again, human life matters more than laundry, our topic of today. Um, and yet Rabbi Yossi says, actually, local matters more. And so your own laundry matters more than, uh, than uh, humans who are far from you. Okay. I hope in our discussion we'll return to this source if you have thoughts or questions on it. Now, it may seem clear to us that the main rabbinic thrust here uh, is the one we agree with. Human life is more valuable than animal life. Human life is more valuable than laundry. And so whether they're near or far, we should choose human life. And yet, what is it with this Rav Yossi here who thinks that our, our own matters more? our own animals over those distant humans, our own laundry over those distant humans that may seem repulsive. However, don't we all kind of live like that? Literally all of us, don't we all allocate funds to the machines, the detergent and the water that clean our clothes? Funds that could have easily been donated to save lives of people in deep poverty in the global South? We wish for our clothes to look good and smell good. How much is that actually worth to us? Did you ever buy a dog for $500? Did you ever spend a few hundred dollars a year on a pet food? Pet food that could have easily been allocated to save human life? How did you decide that money towards an animal life actually is more important than a human life? So here we see actually the abstract butting up against the actuality today of how we allocate funds. And so Rav Yossi seems to be the descriptive, how we live, whereas the rabbis seem to be the prescriptive. Okay, moving on from this issue of laundry. Because Lavan, again, our malach is malabing, which means laundering or whitening, and becomes that, because that comes from Lavan, meaning white, we might explore um, what does white symbolize in Jewish thought. Let's start with the idea of aging and wisdom because it's the most obvious to us. Over here, this comes from Baba Metzia, 87a, this Talmudic passage I'm gonna read from. Uh, if you go back one slide. And Abraham became old. Actually, right here is great. And Abraham became old, it says in Genesis 24:1. Until Abraham, there was no old age. That's interesting. So that one who wished to speak with Abraham might mistakenly find himself speaking to Yitzchak or one who wished to speak with Yitzchak might mistakenly find himself speaking to Abraham because people didn't age. You couldn't tell who was the father and who was the son, who was the mother and who was the daughter. But when Abraham came, he pleaded for old age, saying, master of the universe, you must make a visible distinction between father and son, between a youth and an old man. 
so that the old man may be honored by the youth. God replied, as you live, I shall begin with you. So Abraham went off and passed the night and arose in the morning. When he arose, he saw that the hair of his head and of his beard had turned white. He said, Master of the universe, if you have given me white hair as a mark of old age, I don't find it so attractive. On the contrary, God replied, the Ori head is a crown of glory. Okay, so here in rabbinic thought, or some might say in rabbinic imagination, they suspect that Avraham pleads with God to look older. That kind of seems strange in our own era, our, our own backwards era, where looking older is a sign of uh, decay rather than of wisdom. Everyone wants to look young, right? Youthful looking is the attractive looking in our current society, right? And so Avraham says, I want to look old because I want there to be distinctions between seniors and, and, and juniors. And so make me look old. But then God makes him look old. He says, ah, what did you do to me? <laughs> right? And, uh, and God says, don't worry. This is a crown of glory. This is a crown of glory. The whiteness, the whiteness here is, is a sign of age, of maturity, of wisdom, and of a crown of glory. God loves the maturity and the wisdom that comes along with age, and the color white here represents this process. But thinking about the whitening of hair with the passage of time allows us to focus not so much on age, but rather on the wisdom for which the whiteness serves as a metaphor, as the sages emphasize in another story here from the Talmud tractate of Brachot, 27b until 28a. Rav Elazar's wife says to him, you have no white hair. He was 18 years old that day, and a miracle was wrought for him, and 18 rows of hair on his beard turned white. That is why Rav Elazar ben Azariah said, Behold, it is as if I am 70 years old. And he did not say simply 70 years old. He said, as if. Which is to say that they suspect he's 18 years old, and yet his wife prays for him that he has a miracle, that he now has the, white, the whiteness in his beard and hair to show his, his maturity. We might also the cons consider the idea of Lavan as light, light represented by the moon, which we call in Hebrew Lavana, right? We, the, the sanctification of the moon called Kiddush Lavana, right? Lavan, it's called the light in the sky, right? We look up into the starry night and witness marvelous revelation and the blessing of light within the dark. We gain hope from the whitening or the lightning of the sky. And we understand that wisdom and hope come not only from inherent light, such as that in the sun, but also reflected light, shared and dispersed light, wisdom and insight of a quality worthy of being shared and dispersed that the moon symbolizes. On the other hand, there's also the idea of white as representing a plague. A plague. What comes to mind here? Here's what it says in Numbers chapter 12, Bamidbar, chapter 12, verses 1 to 15, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moshe. They spoke Lashon Hara concerning the Cushite wife he had married. They said, has God only spoken through Moshe and prophecy? He's spoken through us as well. And God heard. And God said, now hear my words. If there shall be prophets among you, I appear to them in visions. I speak to them through dreams. Not so my servant Moshe, he is trustworthy in my entire house. I speak to him mouth to mouth, with clear vision and not in riddles. 
Why did you not fear speaking about my servant, about Moshe? And God became angry with them, and God left. And the cloud left the tent, and Miriam was white as snow with Sarat. Aaron turned to Miriam, and he had Sarat. Miriam was quarantined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not journey until Miriam was brought in. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, so firstly, um, how interesting. The, the idea here, Maimonides talks a lot about this, that prophecy for all the prophets, more or less, happens in a dream state, in a sleep state, right? Moshe is an anomaly in that Moshe in, in, encounters the voice of God, the visions of God directly, whereas others have their prophetic moments in sleep. The Talmud said prophecy is not totally dead with us. One sixtieth of a dream is prophecy. Okay, so that's interesting. And so God is mad that they're speaking out against Moshe. And, um, and the punishment is whiteness, a plague of whiteness. That's Sarat, the leprosy, the leprosy. This is obviously quite relevant to our time as we visit, as we look at the quarantine that emerges. But what's interesting about the quarantine here and the loneliness and the isolation that comes with quarantine is the people did not journey until Miriam was brought in. The response was, let's keep building the economy. Let's grow, weiter, weiter, faster, faster. It is actually slow down, take care of each other, right? And there are people who are in quarantine. We need to figure out how to adjust our society to accommodate for those who need to be in isolation rather than cut them off. Okay, here whiteness is a sign of plague, of punishment, of Lashon Hara. We are reminded by this story that if we speak about someone inappropriately, if we, uh, if we improperly suggest the person's totality is defined by one feature, one relationship, one action, that is, that the individual's personality is mo monochromatic, or even without any color but simply white, we can find ourselves responsible for the plague of communal stasis, the inability of a community to accomplish the growth that accompanies recognition that every person has so many colorful facets. White can also, on the other hand, again, represent friendliness. Friendliness. Rabbi Yochanan said, better to whiten one's teeth with a smile to one's friend than to feed them milk. But on the other hand, whitening another's face, like in this picture, can mean shaming them. As the Sefer Hachinuch writes, the rabbis referred to the sin of publicly shaming another person as maubin panei chavero barabin, publicly causing another's face to become pale. It's called haubanat panim, whitening of the face, refers to embarrassing another, symbolized by the face turning pale with shame. Rabbi Moshe Alshech wrote, Rabbi Moshe Alshech of the 16th century, in his, here's his kever in Sfat, his tomb in Sfat, writes in his uh, commentary on Lo Tamod Adam Reyecha, uh, you shall not stand by the, the, the blood spilled of another. He writes, do not be surprised that one can deserve capital punishment, even though one has not actually ended a life. For has not a person's face been created in the image of God, and without which one would be comparable to an animal? Therefore, one who whitens the face humiliates a person, where the image of God resides, is deserving of death, for one has blemished the sight of the image of God. 
Now, of course, the Alshech is not saying that someone should be put to death for shaming another, but he is resting upon good ground in the Talmudic idea that shaming a person is like killing them. It is like killing them, and thus uh, uh, darkening the light of the image of God within them, and thus, in theory at least, on a Kabbalistic or philosophical level, they are chayiv mita. They are obligated to death for such a, such a crime. It says here over in Darka Shehalacha, one who whitens, shames a, a fellow's face in public, has no place in Olam Haba, in the world to come, even if they have accrued Torah and good acts for the human being is created in God's image. This idea of shaming another is so very serious. On the opposite end, actually one more comment about that before we move on. There's always a tension here. Um, some people say, oh, we shouldn't get involved in advocating for justice because we're speaking Lashon Hara, we're shaming someone else. And here is where Lashon Hara go, goes too far, gets extended too far. The idea that we shouldn't publicly call out in it for accountability, moral accountability, a public figure, or the idea that we shouldn't address, address an injustice because we're using negative speech. Of course, that goes far beyond the intent of what we're dealing here. But to you exercise all caution of the human dignity that's involved for all parties, in most cases, while balancing the need for public transparency and accountability as well. And so those tensions are very, quite complicated. I get a lot of questions from people on how to address issues like that. Difficult to navigate. On the opposite end, white represents purity. Purity, particularly as contrasted with red, which represents sin. This comes from Yom Kippur, actually, from the Mishnah of Yoma, 6.8. Yoma is the tractate of the Talmud. It is about Yom Kippur and beyond. And here's what it says in the Mishnah. How do we know that they tie a crimson thread on the head of the scapegoat, which is sent forth on Yom Kippur? Since it says, through your sin, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Nevertheless, the idea that white and red stand in stark contrast is hardly clear. Jacob had negative experiences with our matriarch, Rebecca's brother, Lavan. Lavan, Jacob's father-in-law, whose name literally means white. And Esau, who has sold his red soup to Jacob and who went on to be embodied in the, in the nation of Edom, whose name means red. Jacob knew, at least, where he stood with his brother. His father-in-law tried to appear white as the driven snow, even as he dealt underhandedly with Jacob maneuvering Jacob into a marriage with one sister, although Jacob expected to marry the other. The problematic nature of Lavan's nature seems to have been borrowed, in a sense, by the English language. The word whitewash is used to signify a lack of transparency and honesty. Lavan doesn't see the dignity of Jacob as a family member, as a worker, or as a person. Rather, one might suggest that, Yaak, that Lavan is the founder of white supremacy, where value is only given to others for what they are able to produce. Think about that. The idea of the economy in the workplace, the idea of white supremacy is you are only valuable, not for your inherent dignity, but for what you can produce for those higher on the hierarchy. Other people are disposable and abusable if they are different from the norm. All that matters is what they can produce for you. In the Pesach Seder each year, 
we read about how Lavan is the paradigmatic anti-Semite. It says, go and learn what Lavan, what Laban, the Aramean, the, the Aramean sought to do to our father Yaakov. A pharaoh made his decree only about the males, whereas Lavan sought to destroy everything. We can learn from Laban about the history of the Jewish people and the threat that still remains today. In the book, Skin in the Game, How Anti-Semitism Animates White Nationalism, Eric K. Ward writes, American white nationalism, which emerged in the wake of the 1960s, civil rights struggle, and descends from white supremacy, is a revolutionary social movement committed to building a whites-only nation. And anti-Semitism forms its, its theoretical core. The last part, anti-Semitism, forms the theoretical core of white nationalism, bears repeating. Ward argues here that white nationalism is a genocidal movement fueled, fueled by anti-Semitism. We must remember that equating whiteness with purity is socially problematic, just as the idea of light and dark can be concerning. We can't explore the process of whitening without looking at the reality of whiteness in people. White people often talk about people of color and discuss blackness, but have white people grappled with their own, our own whiteness? What does it mean to carry the privilege of whiteness? Does complicity come along with this privilege? How might one leverage their own power to amplify, access, and deepen potential for those without that privilege? Sometimes those who seek to shame others have their own internal work to do. Sometimes they might consider refraining from externalizing their pain and rather holding their pain instead. Consider this short teaching from a Hasidic teacher, Rabbi Usher Freund. A tale of one who had a stone within their, within their hurt, and it hurt them, and they grew bitter, and they saw, sought all sorts of ways to throw away the stone, and nothing worked until they came to a wise man who told them, stop trying to throw it away. Carry it. We can't throw away the hurt. We have to learn to carry it. We need to carry our pain rather than throwing it away even as we have to be careful to avoid hiding it, making it invisible in the sense of being without color or only white when we have to let it out. Each of us is given different challenges, different opportunities to serve, and different spiritual paths. Consider the pluralism taught here by Rabbi Akiva Eger. The Gemara says at the end of Masechet Ta'anit that in the future, God will have all the tzaddikim, all the righteous ones, danced in a circle with God, sitting in the center of the circle in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden. Each of the tzaddikim will then point to God and say, this is our God, this is, this is Hashem, who we have lo so long to behold. What is the symbolism behind a dance that is specifically in a circle around Hashem? Rav Akiva Eger explains the lesson of this dance of the tzaddikim as follows. In this world, every tzaddik has a unique individual approach to serving Hashem. On the surface, every one of them appears to be heading in a completely different direction. The truth is, however, that this is not the case. All of the different tzaddikim are united by a common goal, to draw closer to God and to fulfill God's will in the best possible manner. In the world to come, this will become apparent to all. 
that Sadiqim will dance around Hashem arranged in a circle. In a circle, every individual is facing a different direction, yet they all revolve around the same central point. The Sadiqim, although each has a unique approach, are all trying to accomplish the same goal. Their lives revolve around the same central point, the point where God is sitting. In the world to come, each of them will point to him, will, will point to, to, to the divinity, to her, and announce to all that this is their God, to whom they had strived to come close and serve throughout their lives. This is interesting to think about it at Simchat Torah, although it'll probably look different this year, of dancing around the Torah and thinking how we all have a very different relationship to Torah and dance differently, and yet the pluralism of understanding that each of us has our own path to follow. I recently led a Baal Shem Tov where he said we have to listen to our souls to, to find our own avoda. Our own service comes from our, our own revelation, so to speak. So to conclude here, we need not shame others who are on a different spiritual path from us. We also don't have to be embarrassed by our unique calling within our own spiritual path. The malacha of malabain reminds us of the warmth exuded by the white of our smiles, but also of the pain that can be caused by the whitening of another's face. In cleaning laundry, we think of the resources that are involved in such a process, and we think of all the dimensions of whiteness, actual and symbolic, that emerge in our daily realities. Okay, okay, friends, I'm going to open it up to you. I would love to hear thoughts and questions from you. Um, Rabbi, during the high holidays, there are many people who wear a kittle, which is white. So um, my understanding is that they marry while wearing a kittle and they are um, buried wearing a kittle. Love so, it. Yeah. Yeah, keep going. So the significance of white in the garment has to be beneficial or good. So where you said that white is also a negative, I'm not seeing that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, okay, great, great. Thank you for that. Yeah, so... Yes, so parts of, the, parts of the negative dimensions of white we explored are, um, are symbolically through the idea of Lavan and through the ideas of white supremacy um, and, and also through the idea of shaming another, the idea of whitening the face of another. And so those were some of the dimensions. And then we saw many of the positive dimensions of whiteness that we, that we explored um, as a color symbolically and actually, uh, in actuality, um, that we explored in various, various ways, such as the friendliness of smiling, of the white teeth um, that are involved, and a few other ways. Now, it's involved in the kittel. The kittel's very interesting. And I would add a fourth case. You talked about the wedding, you talked about the burial shrouds, and you talked about the high holidays. There's a fourth custom um, that emerges that we don't see as often today, but traditionally, the person leading a Pesach Seder. Perhaps you had a parent or grandparent who did this, or maybe still someone. My, my father-in-law does it. It's not something I do. But my father-in-law, if he leads the Pesach Seder, he wears his white kittel. And so, um, uh, so there's a few ideas here. Um, one is the Kohen Gadol, to be dressed like the Kohen Gadol, who's leading the Passover Seder, 
or, or the Kohen Gadol in regards to the, the Yom Kippur service. The other idea is the, is the idea of rebirth, which is symbolized um, at the wedding, right? We go to the mikvah at the, before the wedding, traditionally, to, um, to represent that it is like a rebirth, just like someone goes to the mikvah if they're converting to Judaism. It's a, it's a, it's a new birth as they convert to Judaism. It's a rebirth in their, in their start of their wedding, and it's a rebirth after Yom Kippur. One is cleansed with a new beginning. And so that, that whiteness, um, that, that white kittel represents that rebirth. But it also goes in the other direction. The idea, or we've kind of lost this in some ways with burial costs. I mean, it's quite tragic how expensive burials are. Um, the cost of burial, the cost of the, of the, of the stone, the cost of the tomb, of, of, the, of the casket. Um, the cost of uh, all the procedures involved. If you didn't read Erica Brown's book on this, on the cost of dying, it's really very well written um, and really opened my eyes up to a lot of this and how tragic it is when someone can't afford that um, or if they couldn't, uh, or if it's left to their children who can't afford that or to someone else, uh, or if they choose cremation only as a, as a, as a cost effective, uh, cost accessible uh, form. Um, now, um, uh, but, but, but going the reverse direction, oh yeah, I'm sorry, so to complete that thought there, um, the, the, the intention there is that everyone in an egalitarian fashion should be buried the same. No one should have more fancy stones or more fancy caskets. Nobody should be dressed in gold or in jewelry, right? Everyone should be buried only in their kittel, only in their white burial shroud. And that's really humbling that if someone is very rich or very poor, we all have the same fate in the casket, right? You don't take one penny with you into the, into the casket. It's really every time I'm involved in doing a burial, or I was just at the cemetery last week doing a, uh, an unveiling, I'm reminded of the profundity of this, of this, uh, this, this uh, reality, which we can never be revisited enough the idea of what do, we, uh, what do we actually take with us beyond, beyond this life? What is it we're actually investing in? And that kittel in death represents that equality of all human beings and the humility of our, of our life and that we die and bring nothing with us. And that is the reminder of Yom Kippur and the reminder at our wedding of what truly matters in building a family, what truly matters in making our goals for the year. Yom Kippur, if I had to say it's one fundamental thing, it is a meditation on death. Yom Kippur is a meditation on death. We wear burial shrouds. We don't eat as if we're dead. We don't engage in marital relations or do other things that living beings would do. We confess as if we're about to die, right? We, we basically do everything we would do like angels or like people who have already passed from this world. Now, this, of course, is not a celebration of death. Um, but rather the opposite. It's an affirmation of life so that we prepare ourselves for death um, in a way that reaffirms our commitment to life. And so we could go both directions. It's about rebirth and thus in, when we're buried, the kittel is a sign of rebirth in Tchiyat HaMetim or in Olam Haba or the opposite direction that we are buried in what we wear on those other days um, merely as an affirmation of life itself. And so, um, yeah, so the kittel is quite profound. Um, and, I, and, I, and I hope we can bring that custom back. In some more liberal circles, it's kind of faded away. Um, and I do think it can be 
uh, quite powerful to think about clothes. Clothes today, many people think about their individual expression through their clothes. Now, I don't want to write that off as pure vanity. I mean, some people take pride in the idea of, of what they wear, and I'm not going to dismiss that. But the idea of clothes being the sole or even primary form of individual expression feels problematic. We see this most prominently among teenagers who feel um, they don't know how to express themselves, and so clothes become so dominant in their lives. Um, and, uh, and they want a brand, a brand to wear. Thank, thankfully, my kids aren't at this, this stage yet. <laughs> I'm terrified when they want the $90 jeans instead of the $20 jeans merely because of a tag on the back, right? Um, it's the same with some cars. People want a car that might run just as well. Um, but, you know, the name, <laughs> the name of the car, the brand of the car gives a different image to it. And so, look, you know, I, that's not for me to judge. I, I don't think Judaism is anti-wealth or even anti-public displays displays of wealth and yet um, it is clear at burial that it is opposed to that there if there is any time we can say there is an ascetic ideal where wealth actually is to be downplayed it is it is with uh, it is with death it is with there thank you for that question um just i was shocked at my very first funeral in israel when i moved there um everybody is buried without a casket in just a just a shroud and just it's kind of shocking because they're kind of wheeled in on like a stretcher and the stretcher is lowered and then you know people put earth on it but hearing you say that about equality of course that's really important so okay. um yeah thank you lauren thank you um so yeah it's very interesting actually this uh, this issue in particular and um as you know um, in traditional Jewish practice, it is both forbidden to speed up, speed up um, uh, uh, the body's decay or to slow it down, right? Slow it down would be mummification and speeding it up would be cremation. Um, uh, that's not me passing a personal judgment. It's very personal on how people decide what they want to happen with their body after this life. I'm not passing a personal judgment there. There's a, a very close member of my family who has demanded cremation after their life for their own personal reasons. Nonetheless, the idea is um, to return to dust naturally. And that is why there's a little hidden secret that when people aren't looking as a rabbi, what I'm supposed to do is kick out the bottom of the casket when it's not wood. If it's wood, the person can be in a wood casket. But if it's not wood, uh, my job is to go and kick it out um, so that, there, so that there's, there's, a, there's a ceiling and walls of a casket, but the body itself is directly in the dirt. And in Israel, obviously, it's a, totally accommodating to these traditions. In America, we would want a wood casket rather than a metal one, um, or to have holes in the bottom of the metal one, so, such that uh, the dirt, there's, a, there's a connectivity of the dirt. Um, actually, related to this, I've done a little work. If you, if you Google it, you can find it easily. I, I've been very troubled by the idea of, um, of non-Jews not being buried next to Jews. Now, I do want to honor the idea of Jewish cemeteries. We have that right for lots of reasons. The desecration of the Jewish dead is longstanding. However, I have deep sympathies for those who wish to be buried next to relatives who are not Jewish. Let me give some obvious examples of what that would look like. One example would be an intermarriage. A Jew married to a Gentile, and they wish to be buried together. 
And that seems very tragic to be told, actually, we won't honor that request. Let me give another example. Um, a parent converts or a child converts and they want to be buried, parent next, mother next to daughter. And that seems tragic to say they can't. And so um, I don't think the answer is to do away with Jewish cemeteries. I, I want to honor that. I also don't think the answer is to deny that. And so uh, for some, this may, this may feel too liberal here. For others, this may feel too traditional here. So I'm sorry if I offend those sensibilities. And for others, this may feel clever. But here is the approach that I've, I've worked on. Um, the idea can be um, that if you create a machitza, a separation, um, then it's as if it's a different cemetery, which is to say, if you put a little bit of fencing next to the two, right, you put, let's say, um, here's Joe, and here's um, his wife, uh, Rebecca, and Rebecca is Jewish and Joe is not, and they want to be buried next to each other in the Jewish cemetery, okay, bury them next to each other, and put a little bit of fencing around his, uh, his space there, so that it's such that it's like a different cemetery. Now, the other uh, legal maneuver I figured out as to how to do that in a way that feels less obvious, there is a concept in Jewish law that underground fencing is also considered as a separation. And so below ground, if you merely put a separation below ground that was not even noticeable above ground, you now have a separate space as well. And so I think this is a way that I would like to see Jewish cemeteries honor the wish to have Gentile uh, loved ones buried next to them. Oh, here's another case. Let's say it's a conservative or an Orthodox cemetery, but somebody converted reform. And so the Orthodox movement or maybe the conservative movement don't view them as halakhically Jewish, but they view themselves as Jewish. So we're gonna say that person can't be buried there. This is another case where we're gonna say, of course you, you should be buried, um, but to honor our, our customs here as well, here's a way we can do it. So I'm sorry, I'm a little bit off uh, topic here, but, um, uh, this kind of emerged in, in conversation. So yes, yeah, someone else, please. So I would I would comment that actually that issue of um, burying uh, non-Jewish members of an extended family in a cemetery is something that we've been discussing in our Hever Kadisha. But I wanted to um, get back to the kittel and the shroud, right. um, and which of course we talk about, uh, you know, yesterday in the Avadas uh, ceremony of the Kohen Hagadol going through the immersions and purifying. So to me, um, and if any of you have assisted at a tahara, we invoke that garbing of the Kohen Gadol when we are dressing the Met after the, the second, you know, washing the real tahara, purification. So to me, it's evoking not so much death, but the journey of the soul and the purity of the soul. That's, I think, the core reason that we're addressing. And even in most, uh, quote, progressive congregations where people might not be wearing actual kittles, they're wearing white. So I think it's about, um, it, it's the soul, the journey of the soul and the purification of uh, that to me is the core meaning. And then a little something that kind of flips the, um, the symbolism of red and white. Uh, it's kind of counterintuitive and too bishvat. We start with the white wine, the pure white wine, and as we uh, ascend to the more spiritual, perhaps, you know, the fourth world, it's all red. So that's kind of an interesting flip on the classic kind of cliche of white being purer. But I just wanted to emphasize uh, what really that shroud, wearing that white shroud is about. Thank you, Andrea. Before we come back to your first point, can you make your second point again about, because um, I, I missed that one. Uh, about the Tu Yes. 
Okay, so in the Tuvishvat ritual that we adopt from the Priyat Sadar, the um, Elisinar community. <clears throat> So you start out, you're uh, going to ascend the four realms, right? Oh, yes. Four worlds. Yes. Okay. But you start, so you're going to drink four cups of wine and four kinds of fruits, starting with those with the hard outer skin, you know, all symbolizing different levels, perhaps, of accessibility to oh, the yeah. spiritual. So we start with a glass of white wine, and then we dilute a little bit, then it's half oh, and half we end up with red wine. When we're not eating, when we're up in absolute. So right. it's kind of a flip on red being the pure, pure, more potent spiritually, and white being more uh, grounded in the first realm, the earthly realm. Oh, okay, very interesting, very interesting. It also reminds me, uh, in a different light, of Rav Cook had the custom at, at Havdalah to drop a little water into his wine at, at Havdalah uh, for the idea that, that wine represents din, din, judgment, and water represents chesed, kindness. And so he wants to dilute the, the, the judgment with a little bit of uh, water. So it's a little bit of a different perspective. But yeah, so, so thank you for sharing that. And to your first point, yes, if, if y'all have never done Hebra Kadisha, um, and this is not for everyone, the idea of the washing of the body for, uh, in preparation for, for death, it is, uh, uh, it, is, uh, it, is, it is quite profound. And so thank you, for Andrew, for sharing that. And, um, uh, and, you know, there was this whole conversation about RBG's burial and the delayal of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's uh, burial, and those who are all up in arms about um, the casket being displayed and, and this and that. And there's what to say there. And, um, uh, but one of the ways that that concept actually gets abused is one of the three reasons um, around burial that people say you can't donate organs for is called halanatamet, the delayal of burial. Um, and uh, actually, it's quite clear that. Um, organ donation is at least permitted and at most mandated. Um, and, uh, and, and the delay of, bur of burial to remove organs is certainly not a, certainly not a concern. Um, and on a similar front, oh, my gallery, uh, on a similar front, um, um, I lost that train of thought. Okay, it'll come back to me. Um, oh yes, oh yes, on a similar uh, thought, the idea emerges of, can anyone ever lose their tzelem elokim, their human dignity? And one of the classic cases as to why not is the murderer who is put to death uh, immediately should be buried because exposing that, um, that person guilty of a capital crime and their shame um, is, is, a, is, a, is a, uh, an attack on their image of God. And so that's, that's an interesting argument for how one cannot lose their human dignity. Uh, that even the, the, the immediate burial in their case is a mandate. Okay, someone else, please. If someone's talking, you're still on mute. Rabbi, it's Vicki. Hi, Vicki. I just was going to agree with what Andrea said and thank her for her insights. My understanding of wearing white is purity and basically stripping us down to our essence. Um, and essence can be the soul. It depends on where you are spiritually, but I think that's it. And 
for death. I think it's when you are leaving this world, you were supposed to be stripped down. You are stripped down to your essence. You're not taking anything with you to that bad joke that people make, but it's true. And you're supposed to leave as you came in. Um, that's how I understand it. Great. You know, I want to uh, thank you for that, Vicki. I want to offer um, one feminist critique of white as purity, um, which is probably obvious once I say it. Um, but girls and women who are shunned in menstruation, uh, shunned in menstruation um, because uh, the red or the blood represents impurity. It represents uncleanliness. Um, and the shame that comes involved with that. I know we probably all read Anita Diamond's The Red Tent probably 20 years ago um, and what comes along with that and still emerges in traditional Jewish circles. The idea that this woman is impure, she shouldn't touch the Torah, she should be socially isolated. Um, and so uh, the idea of white as purity is incredibly powerful as comes with the Kittel and other forms. And I just want to kind of limit some other spaces where the notion of white as pure and red as impure uh, can be socially problematic. I, I would add to that. So there's a whole different symbol system in the ancient, even predating Judaism systems where the, um, there was the feminine goddess, the great mother. Uh, red was the sign, a symbol of the feminine blood, the potency of birth, the life-giving life force. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yes, there is that kind of feminist critique that um, taking that out and making uh, white, which often was associated with death, lack of life, uh, was the polar opposite and involved the suppression of that imagery. So, you know, we can uh -huh. kind of uh, hold them both in a sense. They're thank you. Thank you, Andrea. And Avital, thank you for that point on the side as well, that the, the red blood of the red heifer is very purifying. You know, one other idea I've had, I've never seen this anywhere else, and you can tell me if you find it compelling or not, is um, in an egalitarian fashion, it's kind of strange that um, we draw blood from a baby, a Jewish baby boy, um, in a way that we don't with a Jewish baby girl. Now, let me be clear, I am not calling for female genital cutting. By any means, I'm not. And I'm also not critiquing Brit Milah. I'm against female genital cutting. I'm in favor of Brit Milah. But I've wondered if menstruation is a form of Brit for women um, that, that the male blood as, as a young boy is symbolized through the Brit Milah, and that's the, that is a covenant, and a woman's blood is a sign of covenant, in a sense. Now, it would take some work to flesh all that out, but that kind of gives it a little bit more parity to think about Julie, that. Yes. Is there a ceremony for women who get their first period? There is not a traditional ceremony. There may be some kind of thing out there in the world that people do. Let us know if you know of something. I think that, um, I think best practice today, for example, my, my uh, I, actually, let me not say who it is. There was a young girl who called my wife recently and said, um, I just got my period. And, um, and my wife said, Mazel Tov. And I said, do you get calls like that often? And do you say Mazel Tov often? And I, she said, I never got a call like that. You know, but it just felt right to say Mazel Tov. And so it does seem like a, a best practice today would be to be celebratory because of the history and social norms that shaming comes along with. And actually, some of the shaming comes along with timing. Oh, my goodness, my friends got this two years ago. Where's mine? Right? Am I a woman yet? In a sense, just like boys have their own versions of that. Um, 
And so um, some celebratory nature, but no, there is no Jewish custom around that. Of course, the idea of the bat mitzvah coming earlier is this, uh, than the bar mitzvah traditionally. I think the reform movement made it the same age, right? But I think in conservative, uh, it's, still, it's still different. I know in Orthodox, it's obviously different. But that, of course, is not only around the assumptions of maturity, but also around the physical, physical maturation of the body, that girls' bodies mature uh, earlier than, than boys' bodies. What age is it in Orthodox? Oh, so, so girls have a bat mitzvah at 12, and boys have a bar mitzvah at 13. Oh. And so um, now I've been told, and maybe someone here can verify if this is true or not, that actually based on a number of factors, girls' menstruation is happening earlier and earlier than yeah. it did in previous decades. Is that, is that your understanding as well? Yeah. Okay. So, um, so anyways, I think that, um, that um, um, anyways, more to say about that, but let me leave a chance for another question or comment here. Can I just ask you a quick question? I know we're getting back to burial. I, I know of one case where, um, unfortunately, the woman died young of cancer, married to a non-Jew. So she chose to be buried in a large Gentile public um, cemetery. Um, Halakhically, where does that leave things? I mean, do we even have that option? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, say it one more time. The idea of, was for the Jew to be buried in the non-Jewish cemetery? Yeah. Uh-huh, uh -huh. right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, there's a long history here, and it's quite um, long and complicated. This is not biblical. This is rabbinic. And um, I think the same option I applied to how a Gentile could be buried within a Jewish cemetery could also be applied to a Gentile cemetery where essentially one creates a mini Jewish cemetery within a Gentile cemetery, right? By honoring them, by creating a little bit of a private separation. Now, I'm someone who believes in separation. I'm in a middle ground, as you'll find in a lot of these issues, I'm in a middle ground, that there's one Jewish thought which says radical inclusion, we reject difference. Jews and Gentiles, no different, right? There should be no distinction whatsoever. I don't believe in that. I also don't believe in some kind of Jewish supremacy model that says, Jews are superior in some ways more elevated than Gentiles, reject that. I think there's a middle ground which says Jews are not superior to Gentiles, but Jews are different. We are different and separation and difference is an okay thing. I'm okay not giving a Gentile an aliyah to the Torah. This is something for Jews, not for Gentiles, right? But there's other things on a moral level that Jews and Gentiles should be treated no differently. I also think it's, it's morally justifiable that one gives more tzedakah to fellow Jews than to Gentiles. If one only gave to Jews and not Gentiles, that would be morally problematic. But to prioritize one's Jewish community feels to me morally responsible. Um, and so I'm in that camp of thinking separation is healthy and normal, just as one treats a stranger different than a family member, um, that I think of Am Yisrael as a family. And as a family, you treat your family different than a non-family member. And so I think it's okay um, if it doesn't fall into racist, um, racist uh, um, uh, a racist approach, which often does in, in other spheres of, of Jewish religiosity, um, to, to separate Jews and Gentiles in burial. The idea that our, our lives and maybe our afterlives are, are something different, even though we share 99, more than 99% the same DNA and the same human makeup. So, uh, okay, one more person here. 
Oh, Nona, thank you for that in regards to the, the food we eat affecting, affecting menstruation. Yeah. Anyone else have a closing uh, thought or question? Okay, so on the topic of malabane, of whitening and of bleaching and of laundering, um, who would have thought that we would have gone in some of the directions we did? <laughs> when I first looked at it, I said, wow. Uh, but somehow we got to white supremacy. We got to uh, triage in tzedakah as regards to this first source in the Tosefta. We got to the notions of Lavan and Lavan's legacy, the notion of white hair and what that symbolizes, the idea of sarat, of leprosy, and what the plague symbolizes and the quarantine that comes along with it, the idea of punishment, the idea of the white smile, the teeth, which actually people of every skin color share the idea of white teeth, which is kind of a unifier, which is kind of cool. Oh, I don't, I, I don't even, I think I even failed to mention the idea um, that, um, that our, our hair and our nails, um, traditionally, we wash our hands after we cut our nails and after a haircut. And I would suggest that the reason for that is because we're removing something dead from ourselves, right? There's no pain in the hair. There's no sensitivity in the hair or in the nails. That's why it doesn't hurt to get them cut. And so it is a separation of death and life, um, which is why we traditionally wash our hands, just like after visiting a cemetery, we wash our hands, right? And so, um, so too there, the whiteness of the nails, um, similar to the whiteness of the teeth. Um, I don't believe we wash our hands after a, to a tooth falls out. Um, in any case, uh, we, we followed this, this, uh, this path um, and, and we ended in this place with the Kittel and thinking about burial and about life and death, which is very fitting right after Yom Kippur. And somehow got to the idea of how do we symbolize the Brit in, uh, for women and for girls, because the Simchat Bat doesn't have a physical manifestation of that. And so there's something to think about there in regards to um, both honoring the similar approach to co covenantal uh, responsibility and relationship, and also the difference, the gender-related difference or the, or the, or the, or the sexual difference uh, that emerges there from such thought. Wishing everyone a Shana Tova and a Chag Sameach, and next week we will be up to Malacha number 14, uh, Menafetz. Men, uh, Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you so much.